What's behind the science and inventions that impact our daily lives? Pacific Northwest National Laboratories, pods of science, are the stories of what happens before the breakthrough, before a technology becomes a household name, before the life-saving drug hits pharmacy shelves, before the paper's published. See what happens when great minds meet great challenges. Welcome, I'm your host, Jess Weesey. On today's episode, we'll be talking about how scientists are taking a new approach to better understand and fight cancer. Stay tuned to learn more. New research published in Cell shows a never-before look at the steps that happen when a woman develops endometrial cancer. This type of cancer affects the uterine lining, and it can be deadly. PNNL researchers are using their expertise in mass spectrometry and cancer biology to better target this disease. Meet one of them, Karen Rodlin. I'm Karen Rodland. I'm a PNNL laboratory fellow, and I'm one of the lead cancer biologists at PNNL. The main thing that I do is provide expertise about cancer biology to the mass spectrometry group that does proteomics and metabolomics measurements um, of lots of different tumors. As I got into my 30s and I started really doing this. And it's like, you know, got my PhD, and where am I going to postdoc, and what am I going to do in my own research lab? The number of people I knew who were friends who had cancer, it was just mind-boggling. And I would go to Lions Clubs and Rotary Clubs to do this kind of lay outreach. And I would start by saying, if you or someone you know has had cancer, raise your hand, and every single arm in the room would go up. That's why I do this. Karen has studied cancer biology since the 80s, and she's one of the top experts in the field. I ended up at Oregon Health Sciences University as an assistant professor in the mid-80s, and I was there for 17 years and I earned the right to go on sabbatical, and I came to Pacific Northwest National Lab to learn proteomics because they were the world's best at proteomics, and I thought I was going to need that technology for my research. And I came on sabbatical for a year, and I really enjoyed the team research um, philosophy and culture that they do at PNNL. I was totally impressed with the mass spectrometry technologies and the computational biology expertise, and I saw a great opportunity to apply all these capabilities to biomedical research and particularly to cancer research and advance the field. For years, doctors and scientists have known that cancer is a genetic disease. Our genes control much of what happens in our bodies including the way our cells function, grow, and divide. Because of this, cancer researchers have spent a lot of time studying the DNA and RNA of cancer cells. But Karen looked one step closer. She and her team studied the protein synthesized by these cells. What we call the central dogma of molecular biology is you have the genes, and they're the blueprint and they send out kind of a Xerox copy, and that's the messenger RNA, and then the message gets made into proteins, and the proteins actually do the work. And the way that they do the work is 
by being modified with phosphorylation, which turns them on and off, or by acetylation, which opens them up or closes them down. So it's easy to measure DNA, and it's easy to measure RNA. It, it, the technology has been very, very well developed. It's inexpensive. It's easy. So scientists and doctors measure what is easy and convenient to measure. So we can measure genes, and that's the only tool that most doctors have for doing precision medicine, is the genes. And maybe they can do the RNA. And so all these models have been built up trying to predict disease outcome based on the genes and the RNA. What we found is that when you add the proteins, you get much, much more information. And sometimes the information from the RNA is a little bit misleading. It's a little bit different than the information that you get from the proteins. But if we correlate the proteins with clinical outcomes, um, known clinical features, we find that the protein modifications are more powerful. In this study, Karen and her team studied nearly 150 uterine tissue samples, and they did so using a tool called a mass spectrometer. This incredibly sensitive instrument can measure the smallest parts of a sample. Using the mass spectrometer, the team took many different types of measurements, so many that they actually took more than 12 million measurements, the most ever taken of proteins for cancer research. The type of research that we do at PNNL with our great mass spec is discovery research. We're not trying to test a hypothesis. We're trying to study what it is and describe it in, in great detail. And then we hand that information off to the basic scientists at OHSU, say, and they tease out parts of it and they do a very specific experiment to see what the relationship is. And so that's how the science grows and grows and grows. This type of research was only possible with an amazing team of collaborators. Like much of the research done here at PNNL, this research was done by a multidisciplinary team where each team member is an expert in something unique. We have a great team at PNNL. Um, Tao Lu runs the mass spec, and he runs it very, very well, and he knows how to design experiments to make things work on the mass spec, and he just knows how to get people to work together and work well and everything. There's a very large mass spec team that's very great. There's Paul Pihowski, who works on the sample processing, and Marina Gritsenko, who solves the problems in sample processing. She's a very prominent author on this paper because doing the sample processing was so important. There's Ron Moore who keeps the, the uh, instruments running well. Then um, there are the people who help us interpret the data. Jason McDermott and his team, uh, they take all that mass spec data and they start to make sense out of it and build the pieces of the uh, mass spec machinery. Uh, Sam Payne is on our team. He was at PNNL. He's now at Brigham Young University. Bing Zhang is the lead of the Baylor team, and he's been a collaborator with us for 10 years. And then the consortium, the CPTAC consortium, has brought together a number of high-power labs that do nothing but genomic analysis. PNL is not as strong in genomic analysis as we are in proteomic analysis. So we've been teaming with the folks at Washington University in the lab of Lee Ding and the folks at New York University in the lab of David Fenyo. 
Obviously, it's bad to get cancer, but there are different types of cancer, and the type of cancer a patient has will determine how aggressively it spreads. Karen describes the differences as bad actors versus good actors. By doing their in-depth protein analysis, her team can now better identify if a cancer is a bad actor or a good actor. When somebody has a tumor, the first things that the doctor does is to sample the tumor by a biopsy or um, removing the, the tumor if it's small localized. And then you give it to a specialized kind of doctor called a pathologist who looks at it under the microscope. And for over 100 years, we have a lot of observational data about if the tumor looks like this, it's going to behave bad. If it looks like this, it's likely to behave well. But we don't know why. We just know that there's an association between what it looks like and how it behaves. And then there are tumors that we know behave badly when they look like they should be tame tumors. Okay. So there's a type of appearance that we call serous endometrial cancer, and it's a bad actor because it doesn't look like a well-developed uterus. And there's a type of um, cancer that we call endometrioid, endometrial cancer, and it's a good actor. It's pretty much doing what it's supposed to do. It's just growing faster than it's supposed to, and you can whip it into shape pretty easily. But there's a small percentage of those endometrioid, endometrial cancers that become bad actors and that metastasize and kill the woman. And um, you can't tell it by looking under the microscope, and you can't really tell it by looking at the DNA. And so what we found was the protein behaviors in those bad actors that look like the proteins in the serous type that we know are going to be bad actors. So we can look for the common features that define a tumor that's going to be aggressive and nasty and a bad actor. So not only does that allow us to, to make a prediction about, you know, you can rest assured, you can be comfortable, the surgery is going to cure you. But then if you're not in that nice reassuring category, we can start to do a better job of attacking the problem, of developing targeted therapeutics that are going to attack precisely what is broken in those tumors that are the bad actors, no matter what they look like. It's what their proteins are. Not only did the team find the protein data to be so rich, they were able to use this information to learn more about immune cells. Tumors attract immune cells, and they are a big part of the problem when it comes to the spread of cancer because they can trick the body into thinking tumors aren't dangerous. Think of an intruder wearing a disguise to mask their true identity. When we look at the tumor, we're not just looking at the tumor cells themselves. We're also looking at the immune cells that have been attracted to the tumor. And immune cells, their job is to kill anything that's foreign. And a tumor cell is a foreign cell. It is changed and mutated. So it should look foreign to your immune system. And the immune system should attack it and kill it. But many tumors make immunosuppressive molecules that, that tune down the, the immune system. So we can actually measure how much of the immunosuppressive nature is there. So one of the hottest therapies in cancer these days is immunotherapy. 
where we um, stimulate the immune cells to kill the cancer cell. We remove the suppressive factors and we stimulate the aggressive factors and they kill the tumor cells. So we, with the proteins, we can identify uh, how much tumor suppression is there and whether the immunotherapy will work. But even when we stimulate the tumor cells, the, the immune cells to be active, um, they have to have certain machinery that allows them to actually reach out and touch the tumor cell and recognize that it's a tumor cell. And so we can also tell whether the this tumor cells that are there have enough of this machinery to actually do their job. So this is going to help us determine whether immunotherapy will work for that patient or not. Uh, because immunotherapy right now is only working in 40 to 60 percent of people. We don't know why it works in some and not in others. When it does work, it's practically a cure. When it doesn't work, it can also make you very sick. It can stimulate your, your immune system to attack your healthy cells. So we don't want to tune up your immune system if it's not going to work against the cancer. So this allows us to be more precise in how we use immunotherapy. There's one huge benefit to learning more about the proteins of an immune cell. With this knowledge, doctors might be able to spare patients unnecessary side effects from treatment options. By looking at immune cell proteins, Karen's team could determine whether or not different types of immunotherapy would work for a patient before trying it out. This means patients won't have to suffer the side effects for no good reason. It's precision medicine in action. Well, most immune therapies um, make you feel like if you've had the worst flu you've ever had. The early days of immunotherapy uh, used the same molecule that your immune cells make when you have the flu. And um, patients that I've worked with said, we don't want you to research immunotherapy because it makes you feel really horrible and it's not working often enough to be worthwhile. So we had to understand the biology enough that we could make immunotherapy successful and that we could also use different strategies that didn't make you quite so sick. So almost everybody who gets immunotherapy feels like they have a really crappy flu. But, you know, I'll go through the flu if it will cure my cancer. Some people get what's called an immune storm, and the whole immune system just flares up like a thunderstorm, and it can attack the heart muscle, and that's obviously very dangerous. But Karen didn't just find a better way to do immunotherapy. She and the team almost accidentally discovered something that could be a lifesaver for patients in the future. With the protein data, they were able to identify an alternative use for a pre-existing FDA-approved drug. This other use? Uterine cancer treatment. Going back to the genome data that was available, so we had a p53 mutant cancer. A lot of endometrial cancers have a mutation or a fault in the TP53 gene. That is a gene that normally suppresses growth. So it's what we call a tumor suppressor. So if it's broken and it doesn't work, the break is off and the cells grow. So, but there's no drug that treats TP53 because it does so many different things. It's just difficult to drug. So by using the, studying the protein data, instead of just the gene mutation, we can see the proteins 
downstream of p53 that are activated, their activity is increased when p53 is broken. Okay, so it's like a Rube Goldberg machine, you know, and if you drop the ball into the bucket, the shoe kicks the mouse. And um, so if we can't stop the ball from dropping in the bucket, maybe we can inhibit the shoe from kicking the mouse. So by doing the proteins, we can outline the whole Rube Goldberg machine. And so in this case, we identified that a protein downstream of the p53 that was activated when p53 is broken is called a cyclin-dependent kinase 12. And there is a drug out for that that has been approved by the FDA. Now, without our data, you would never have thought of using that drug on endometrial cancer. But now that we can see the whole Rube Goldberg machine, we can see that maybe the drug against CDK12 will work in endometrial cancer. This is exciting because it means that a clinical trial could begin soon. All of this is because of the advanced protein measurements done at PNNL. To me, the big advantage of doing the protein measurements and the phosphoprotein measurements is that we're actually able to track the flow of information in a cancer cell from the external environment that is supporting the growth of the tumor cell to the DNA in the nucleus so that we're making more cancer cells and more cancer cells and more cancer cells. So that whole pathway of information is very important. We can't get that from the gene mutations. We can only get that from measuring the proteins and the phosphoproteins. So that's the big takeaway. The second big takeaway is that when you add in information about the phosphorylated proteins, it really tells you not only what roads are there, but which roads have the most cars, which are having the most traffic, which is really driving the disease. And that's the information that you need to have to do the targeted therapies that people are working on. Now with improved insight into what the proteins are doing, how they are behaving, and how they're changing over time, patients can receive life-saving medicine that's tailored to them before it's too late. Nothing happens overnight, but, um, you know, we licked infectious diseases. Maybe we can lick cancer. You know, as, as um, Brian Drucker says, I want cancer to be something you die with, not of. A big thanks to Karen and other researchers like her who are part of the Clinical Proteomic Tumor Analysis Consortium. And with that, I'll let Karen wrap up our latest episode of Pods of Science. And we're done. Thanks for listening to Pods of Science. Want to learn more? Follow us on social media at PNNLAB. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can also visit our website at pnnl.gov. Thanks for listening.